A standard guitar has six strings. They're tuned in fourths, which means that each string is a fourth above the string below it. Except there's one string that's a third above the string below it. It makes things much more complicated. I think that's why an old jazz piano professor of mine used to say, the guitar isn't a musical instrument, it's a math equation. Pretty cool math equation, though. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. My name is Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about the many ways that a musical instrument can be a math equation and a musical instrument at the same time. We've got a very strong song to get into this episode, and like a lot of strong songs, it does involve some math. So find your favorite listening spot, turn up the volume, kick back, and enjoy the show. Music is meant to be shared, but there's also something special about listening to really good music by yourself with headphones on. The weather in Portland, Oregon has been beautiful lately, and I've made it a habit to every day go on a walk. And, you know, I'll walk up Mount Tabor, which is this really nice spot in southeast Portland. And it used to be I would put on headphones and maybe listen to a podcast or a book on tape, or maybe I'd have a phone call with a family member or something. But lately I've made a really strict practice out of putting on headphones and just listening to an album all the way through while I go on a walk. And just, is there anything better than listening to really good music on good headphones while you're out for a walk in the world? It's this feeling of having a soundtrack for everything that you're seeing, and it's something that only you are experiencing, and everyone around you doesn't know what you're listening to. And if you're like me, you're kind of bopping along, and you're dancing when a really good song comes on, and it's something that's both personal and shared with the world around you. I don't know. It's a wonderful thing to do, and I really recommend giving it a shot if the weather is nice near you. Thank you so much to everybody who came through and left a review on the Apple Podcast app. Um, I asked people to do that on the last episode, and we got a whole bunch of reviews, so thank you to everyone who did that. If you haven't done that, and you think you could or you haven't left a review, uh, please do. It's been really great to see more, and I think that that does help increase the visibility of the show. So that's just one really easy way that you can help this show. A lot of people have been doing it, and it means a lot to me, and it's nice to see. So thank you. Thanks also to the people who have recently signed up to become patrons of Strong Songs on Patreon. That is also cool to see. The show had a bit of a slowdown on new patrons signing up after the initial wave of people who signed up, which is, I think, probably pretty normal and um, understandable, but it's been nice to see some new people signing up, and I'd love to get more people directly supporting the show as well. Strong Songs is currently a completely listener-supported show. That's the only way I make money off of it, and I'd like to keep it that way. I'm not currently at a sustainable rate with the amount of work that I put into the show, which isn't the end of the world. You know, I really like doing this show. Um, But if you'd like to consider becoming a Patreon backer, you can find more info at patreon.com slash strongsongs. And yeah, you know, thank you for considering it. And to everybody who has already signed up to support the show, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You can find, as always, half and whole note backers' names in the show notes and thanks to all of you a couple more quick things i'm going to be sending out another newsletter this week you can sign up in a link that's down in the show notes and as always you can send me questions or feedback or suggestions to strongsongspodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet them at me at kirk k-i-r-k hamilton and yeah we'll be doing a q a episode in a little bit here so i'm welcoming questions for the next q a episode 
Okay, time to get into this episode's song. It's a very strong one and one that I think a fair number of listeners have been waiting for me to do, so I'm very excited to get into it. Far from an uplifting or inspiring ditty, this one is a discordant descent into confusion and paranoia, written and recorded by one of the greatest bands of our age for one of the greatest albums of all time. What's that, you say? Well, actually, you don't just say what's that. To get in the spirit of things, maybe you'd say it a little bit more like this. Oh yes, on this episode we're going to be immersing ourselves in the deep dark folds of Radiohead's 1997 masterpiece, Paranoid Android. When I am king, music will be a required curriculum at all schools, and teachers will be paid as much as tech executives. But hey, this isn't about me. This is about the weirdo protagonist of Paranoid Android, who seems to be some combination of the Douglas Adams character for which the song is named, and also just a kind of a general moody, angsty 90s teen. Someone who, for all their antisocial tendencies and sort of general feeling of disconnection with the world around them, definitely got a really good song written about them. There's a lot to get into here with some interesting guitar tones, some very interesting guitar arrangements and band arrangements vocal arrangements, weird time signatures, fascinating harmonies, all kinds of cool stuff that we're going to get into. So uh, let's do this thing. First up, some vital stats. Paranoid Android was the lead single off of Radiohead's landmark 1997 album, OK Computer. It was written by the entire band, whose personnel consists of Tom York on lead vocals and acoustic guitar on this track, Johnny Greenwood, of course, legendary guitar player for Radiohead, Ed O'Brien also playing guitar, Colin Greenwood playing bass, and Philip Selway on drums and percussion. It's an unusual song and kind of a hard one to get into. I remember hearing recommendations about this song much later, actually, than the album came out, and it took me a minute to warn to it, and part of that is because of the structure of the song and the way that it's put together. It's a very unusual song, and actually unusual in the same way as a very famous song that we have already covered on this very show. So most songs follow a kind of a standard form. This is called song form, and that means they have a chorus and they have a verse. Usually it starts with the verse, and then you go to the chorus and then to the bridge. However, there are a very kind of rare number of songs that deviate from that established form or the you know various permutations of that form and do something different. Paranoid Android is definitely one of those, and it does something that's called being through-composed. It's a through-composed song. Now, if you've been listening to this show from the beginning, you will remember that the last through-composed song that we talked about was Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, another song that kind of eschews the standard form and does something different. It's a through-composed song that just moves from section to section to section uh, from beginning to end, but it doesn't have that kind of more traditional and familiar form. Now, it's interesting, actually. Bohemian Rhapsody was recorded in 1975, so 22 years years before Paranoid Android, but it also is about, uh, you know, a protagonist who's this alienated young man who kind of feels abandoned by society, and it kind of has some similar themes, even though it's a very, very different song musically. There's still this sort of a through line, and I see a, I see a similarity between the two songs, even down to some of the, you know, like the way that Bohemian Rhapsody is this very piano-oriented song, where Paranoid Android is this very guitar-oriented song. They do a lot of things similarly, and I kind of find that cool. I'm not going to spend too much time talking about that on this episode, since I already did a whole episode about Bohemian Rhapsody, which you should go listen to if you haven't. But um, I do think that that's kind of a cool parallel, that in 1975, Queen recorded Bohemian Rhapsody, and then 22 years later, another British band recorded another kind of very interesting, through-composed, ambitious song that had a lot in common with it, despite being very different in a lot of ways as well. Nothing really matters. 
So like we did with Bohemian Rhapsody, I think it would be helpful to start by just outlining that form because it is a little bit unusual and giving a little bit of a roadmap for where we're going to be going and the the four sections of this song. So I do think that Paranoid Android generally has four sections. One is kind of a reprise of another, but I sort of see it as broken into four different parts. So uh, let's outline those four parts right now. So I kind of see this song as a descent. This song is a sort of a descent into darkness and you're, it feels submerged. It feels like you're being submerged in the song as you listen to it. It grows kind of darker and noisier and more violent as you go deeper, which I think is on purpose. It feels almost like a descent into someone's psychology. It's kind of like Inception. There's a dreamlike quality to this song and it feels like from the beginning to the end, it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper until it ends in this kind of just destructive place. And uh, it's not a not a happy song, but that descent is very um, compelling. And I think it, it really pulls you in and makes you want to keep listening just to see where you're going, even if it is a little bit nightmarish. So it begins on the surface. You can kind of think of it as the surface of a lake almost that it then goes underneath. And on the surface of the lake is the kind of intro section, which is where the initial guitar riff is introduced. The bass is actually out. This is another similarity to Bohemian Rhapsody. The bass doesn't come in until partway into the introductory segment. But this is kind of the intro section where everyone is in, the whole band is in, Tom York is singing. But it's uh, it's uh, you know built around this certain harmony that we'll get into in a little bit and a certain guitar riff. And it just kind of loops and builds and grows denser and denser as it goes. That section concludes with the introduction of a guitar riff that I would say is kind of like the signature guitar riff of Paranoid Android. And that starts the second section, which is kind of the first riff-based section of this song. And I kind of think of it as the first plateau. If we've gone under the surface, we've kind of, you know, followed, you can almost picture one of those divers lines that they follow that goes down from a buoy. This is the first plateau. It's almost like a stopping point. And the song hits this riff, you know, the acoustic guitar introduces it and then everybody comes in on it. And that plateau kind of builds in intensity and pressure until it really, you know, rips in and the distorted guitars come in. And we get the first guitar solo, which kind of is the first kind of subclimax of the song. It's a place where the song really explodes for the first time. So after that violent climax, you know, the electric guitar solo, that's where the song takes its biggest shift in tone and sound and approach and arrangement and everything. And that's when there's this sort of a dreamlike choral section. It's this great release that happens after all the tension that's been building for the first part of the song. And that's kind of where the song feels like you've just let go of the guideline and you're just drifting down into darkness. This is where the choir is singing and it's really beautiful stuff. You know, this is the section that, to me anyways, elevates this song. It's gorgeous and dark and lost, and it just is so evocative. I really love this section a lot. Of 
course, we're so deep, you know, we're wandering around the bottom of the lake at this point, and the pressure must be so great that eventually it just kind of bursts through, and the song breaks and goes into its final section, which is one more guitar solo that's this just very discordant and noisy, violent end. feels like a terminus, almost like death, you know? It feels like your pressure suit has cracked and the pressure has just smushed you down and it just almost, it like hits a wall, or not even a wall, it just is immediately compressed into a tiny little block. And that's the end of the song. And that's the song, you know? It's sort of a, a slow descent into the darkness of the mind that ends with this beautiful rumination on the floor of a dark lake right before the pressure overwhelms you and crushes you forever. <laughs> so, you know, Katrina and the waves, this ain't. Okay, so we've outlined the four main sections of the song. Let's go back to the very beginning and start at the top. This song actually does something really funny at the very beginning of the song uh, that I dig anyways, and I don't think I've ever heard another song do, because actually, you, you may think of, you know, Paranoid Android as beginning with that famous uh, acoustic guitar riff played by Tom York, but it actually begins with a very different sound, and that's this. Yeah, so for whatever reason, Radiohead decided that Paranoid Android should begin with four clicks on a metronome. I don't know if this is the actual click track that they use. That's what it's called in the studio when you have just something running through everyone's headphones to keep everybody playing in time. Uh, the click track. And I don't know whether they decided to actually use the click track or just put that in. It sort of acts as a segue between this and Airbag, which is the first song on OK Computer. Paranoid Android is the second song. And it's just this funny transition where basically you get four clicks of a metronome counting you in, and then the whole band comes in. It's a cool and sort of offbeat beginning that I that I enjoy anyway. So we are in at 82 beats per minute, and uh, the band comes in, everybody but the bass. So everybody but Colin Greenwood is playing. And the defining thing here is the acoustic guitar pattern that Tom York is playing. And that's really what defines this introductory section, uh, is both Tom York's vocals and also Tom York's acoustic guitar playing. This is a really cool guitar part, and it's also a guitar part that's very guitar-y. You know, kind of in the same way that some of uh, Freddie Mercury's piano parts were very piano-y, this is very guitar-y. And um, I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, in a moment. So let's just listen to that section just one time through before we get into what the harmony is and what's going on there. Uh, just check it out and listen to it. So hopefully they actually play through one complete phrase of that initial section without any vocals, which makes it easier to kind of break it down harmonically. So what's going on is they're going back and forth between two different tonalities, two different chords, and that's C minor and then G minor. And it's actually a really specific type of minor, we'll get into it in a second, but that's the gist. It kind of goes, it starts here on C minor, and then it moves down to G minor. Now, I mentioned there's a specific type of minor going on, and that type of minor is Dorian. Uh, you may remember from a Q&A, I talked about the modes of the major scale. Not going to do a whole mode breakdown again, but Dorian is the second mode of major. It's basically like an F major scale, but you start on a G. And in that case, you get a scale that sounds like this. 
Now, the difference between a Dorian minor scale and a natural minor scale, which is the name for just sort of standard type of minor, is there's just one note difference, and that's the sixth note. There is a natural sixth in a Dorian scale, and there's a flat sixth in a natural minor scale. I know, I know, flat sixth in a natural minor scale. I mean, also really natural minor is the same thing as the Aeolian mode. Uh, don't worry about it. Don't, don't let it confuse you. Basically, what you need to know is the sixth note is the different note, and Paranoid Android is lousy with natural sixths in a minor tonality. That's a really distinct sound, the natural sixth in a minor tonality. So when you're in G minor, if you're playing an E natural, which is the natural sixth, it sounds like this. You'll hear it in a lot of things. It's a sort of a mysterious, but actually kind of a brighter sound than a flat sixth would be. And it happens all the time in this song. That's that natural sixth. That's that E. It's kind of where the line ends up is over an E. It is a cool and very evocative sound. I mean, it's perfect for this song, right? It sets such a mood of sort of mystery. And that's why I've always liked Dorian. I think that the sound of Dorian is a more mysterious kind of minor, and it works beautifully here. Even in that melody, when Tom York comes in, he ends the phrase, when it gets down to the G, he ends on that E. It just gives it that weird suspended sound, right? Like that melody uh, sounds like this. So just really emphasizing that natural sixth, which is also happening in the guitar part. Also, I know the lyrics are not this, but you cannot convince me that the first two words of Paranoid Android are not Paschetti stop. I know, I know. It's it's please could you stop. Tom York is not actually a four-year-old trying to say spaghetti. Um, it just kind of makes me laugh. So the melody and the harmony are both emphasizing this kind of dreamy, mysterious, somewhat foreboding Dorian minor tonality. And the way that that's coming across harmonically is mostly from the acoustic guitar. There's some electric guitar in there too, but Tom York playing acoustic guitar is really kind of defining the harmony of this early part. And the reason that that Dorian sound, that natural sixth in particular, the E natural works so well, is because of the layout of the guitar in particular. Now I'm no master guitar player, Tom York is a better guitar player than I am, but I kind of figured out the basic, you know, fingerings for this guitar, and it all revolves around this one kind of shape, this one part. So when guitar players talk about a shape, they're kind of talking about you put your fingers in one place on the neck of the guitar, and then you move some fingers around, but you don't really deviate too far from that shape. Guitar is a very geometric kind of an instrument because you look at it in terms of, okay, what pattern, you know, what kind of constellation um, is my fingers making on the neck right now? And that's kind of how you think of a chord because the guitar neck, you know, every thing looks the same. It isn't like a piano keyboard where there's white keys and black keys. There's just a bunch of frets and you can slide your fingers around and suddenly be playing something dramatically different. It's why guitar players tend to think in shapes. It also kind of gets at the root of my old jazz professor's joke about guitar being a math equation and not a musical instrument. It feels a little bit more like a geometry puzzle sometimes than a collection of different notes that you're just arranging as you see fit. So the Paranoid Android guitar part takes this one shape and it puts it over two different places. It starts over C, so it's up on the eighth fret. Sounds like this. And then it actually slides down to the third fret to be over G. 
and then it kind of hangs out over G for the second part. And it just goes back and forth between those two places, and the shape stays the same, the bass notes move around, but your top two fingers don't really move. So when I describe Paranoid Android as a very guitar-y song, I mean that in the same way that I describe a Queen or an Elton John song as very piano-y. You can always kind of tell what instrument a song was written on. This was definitely written on guitar, because it uses so many open strings and so many like guitar shapes to do what it's doing. You can play it on piano, and it sounds pretty cool on piano, but it was definitely written to be played on guitar, because the main guitar riff is just very written to be played on guitar. It's not just chords, it's like guitar shapes and open strings. So when I say open strings, let me just really quickly explain what I mean. Uh, like I mentioned in the intro, the guitar has six strings, and if you're a guitar player and you're writing for a guitar, you want to use open strings as much as possible. An open string just means you're not doing anything to it, you're not pressing it down, it's just ringing out. And a lot of basic guitar voicings have open strings. The difference between, you know, an open, a chord with a lot of open strings and a chord with entirely fingered and closed strings is kind of the difference between, okay, here's a C bar chord, which means all the strings have my fingers on them. This is a closed chord then I guess I don't know if that's what it's called but this is a closed C chord and this is an open C chord which is really standard fingerings one of the first chords that you'll learn when you're learning guitar this is what it sounds like with a couple of open strings ringing Now you might not be able to immediately tell the difference between those just by listening to them, but you can tell when you hear a guitar. You know, when a guitar player is playing a bunch of open chords, they usually leave strings ringing in between different chords, uh, letting common tones ring out, and you get what most acoustic guitar parts sound like. You know, when they're written in keys like G and C, the reason they're written in those keys is because it lets you let, you know, the G string or the E string ring out across chords, and you get a more kind of uh, connected and sustaining tone. So I should actually say, I'm not saying that every guitar song should use as many open strings as possible or anything. There are plenty of cool songs that just have bar chords and closed chords. A lot of funk playing doesn't use open strings at all. Um, but, you know, with a lot of songs that people write on guitar, they tend to kind of go for open strings because it lets you make distinct sounds, sounds that are distinct to the guitar. You know, there are a lot of very famous guitar parts that typically use open strings. I don't know, one really famous one is the Beatles' Blackbird that uses an open G throughout that sounds really, really cool. You know, the magic of that sound is that there are these two notes moving kind of in concert with one another while the G string, which is an open string, just rings out in between them. That's that G. So there's something similar going on with this initial part on Paranoid Android, and actually in later parts too. Uh, in particular, it happens when the, when you go down to the G, when the shape moves down to that G minor chord, because suddenly it's using this kind of walk up from the A string, which is open, and then it goes down to that low E which is the E string and is very low, and that's the lowest note the guitar can do, and it's kind of the bottom of the phrase. This whole phrase feels like it's moving downward, and like I've described this song, it's very much a descent into the depths. And the reason, part of the reason that it feels like it's descending is because it pushes all the way down to the very bottom of the guitar, to that lowest string, you know, the sixth string, just ringing open on an E.
So a couple other cool things going on during this intro section before uh, Colin Greenwood comes in on bass. Uh, one of them is just Tom York's singing, which I think, you know, I, I could talk about for any part of this song, but it's really cool to listen to what he's doing vocally here. I think that Tom York has a beautiful and extremely distinct voice, and I love what he is doing on this line. His voice is so stretchy and sort of elastic. He's doing something where he's jumping over his break. You know, that line starts on a C and then it goes all the way up to a B flat. And he's well into his falsetto on that higher point. But he comes back down and he's just totally like kind of skating over this very tightly stretched part of his voice on that final E, which is right in the male vocal break. It's super cool sounding. So the male vocal break kind of happens over this period of time, somewhere between C and G, which is like right where he's singing. He kind of starts at the beginning of it. So the line is with all the unborn chicken voices in my head. And the first part, he kind of sings in his really light, stretchy chest voice. It's kind of right here. With all the and so you're right up there at the top of your chest voice. And then he does the jump. He jumps up into his head voice. So that's this like, born chicken voices. And then once he's up there, in his head voice, he like, teases it down in this really kind of cool, gross way that he's really good at, where he comes back down into just this like stretchy light mix. So it's this like chicken voices in my head. And he's he's just pushing right up against it. And it's just it's the sound of someone stretching rubber really thin so you can kind of see through it like a membrane almost. And he's just right here, and he's just in this place that's right between your chest and your head voice. And that's basically what he's doing with his vocal cords. It's super cool and fun to listen to him do that. He does it throughout this song in a lot of really incredible ways, and it's what makes him such a distinctive singer. So listen to it again and listen for him doing that much, much better than I did it. The beat that's going on under this whole thing is this kind of vaguely Latin-influenced groove that's pretty cool. Um, if we want to do the patented Strong Songs thump, pop, sizzle breakdown, the thump and pop, and I believe the sizzle also are all Philip Selway, the drummer, though he's doing the sizzles separately. Um, basically what's happening is there's no snare drum in, there's a kick drum, there's a sort of a like clack sound that's some sort of a drumstick hitting something. It's like a wood block or some sort of a percussion instrument. And then the sizzle is kind of coming from two different things over in the right channel. There's sort of one of the those uh, kind of grinder shakers. I don't have one, so I'm just using a sample. And then over in the left channel, there's a shaker going. It sounds like some kind of an egg shaker, so I'm just going to use an egg shaker for that. The only other thing that's going on, and this is, I believe, credited to Colin Greenwood, so maybe this is what he's doing before he comes on bass, is there's a clave going in the left channel. Now, the clave is a Latin percussion instrument that's basically two wooden dowels that you kind of click together. You hold one in your hand, and you leave a little space underneath it as a resonant chamber. And it's actually a really crucial instrument in a lot of Latin music. They are not playing traditional clave as I understand them anyways, but um, Colin Greenwood is using it. It's over there on the left channel. It's adding just this little light, um, high-pitched clicking sound that um, you can hear pretty clearly when you listen back. So the whole groove comes together like this. Okay, now listen to the actual recording and listen for all that.
Now over there in the left channel, you heard the final element of the song, and that's Johnny Greenwood's guitar. This is the first thing that he plays. His guitar playing is a super defining aspect of this song, and he gets just wild tones and plays some really creative and weird stuff. He's a fascinating musician, um, a great film scorer, too, actually, in addition to all the great work that he's done um, with Radiohead. He's done some really cool film scores, too, so he's just a really interesting musician. So his guitar entrance sounds like this. Greenwood is using an effect there that I saw described online as a flanger and actually had called a flanger on this show. This is my first ever edit to the show. Um, but it sounds to me like a phaser. And um, I actually had been using a phaser to try to recreate the sound, which is sort of an effect that's similar to a flanger. It has a kind of similar undulating sound, though it affects the sound signal differently. Anyway, a listener reached out and sent me a really cool resource that actually has a list of all of the guitar effects that Johnny Greenwood has ever used. And he was definitely a phaser fan. So I should have I should have trusted my ears and um, initially said that it sounded like a phaser to me, despite the fact that I had seen it called a flanger online. And yeah, I'm not going to get into how a phaser works, but if you want to know more about how a flanger works, you can listen to the last episode, which covered Hart's tune Barracuda, which definitely uses a lot of flange on the guitars. Okay, so that's the opening section done with. We basically got all the main elements except for the bass have been introduced. So let's listen to just that part of the song. This is after Tom York comes in. So we've got the acoustic guitar part coming in. It's doing that descending line going down. It's emphasizing that E to bring out that Dorian sound. We've got Johnny Greenwood's guitar kind of creeping in over on the left with that flange turned on. We have the groove with the percussion and that sizzle is happening in that shaker over in the right channel. There's a clave going in the left channel. And that's pretty much what's going on. So listen for all of that. Hear how Tom York's voice is sort of beautifully threading over his break and the way that his vocal melody is moving up while the rest of the song is moving down in yet another example of the kind of contrary motion that we've talked about on a bunch of different episodes. Here comes the bass. that's kind of this really cool interlude section that happens in between verses and uh, a couple cool things are happening there first off the harmony changes so the chords it introduces new chords it starts descending from a g minor to an f major seven and then down to an e seven as that happens, all three guitars are playing that, including a new guitar that's introduced over in the right channel. I'm not sure if that's Ed O'Brien or Johnny Greenwood. I will have to just guess. Uh, maybe it's all three of them, because all three guitars are actually playing the same line, and they're actually yet again playing open strings. They've got an open E ringing out on top. That note that's on top of that line is an E, because it works really well on the guitar. If you play that line on guitar, it sounds like this. Thank you. 
So that top string, that's an open E. So they've got that open E string ringing out yet another open E string. This is sort of the first string instead of the sixth string. Those are both open E strings, just the really low one and the really high one. But that, uh, that E is just ringing out through the whole thing and all three guitar parts are playing that. So listen to that section again and listen for all the guitar parts. They're all playing that E, maybe in different octaves, but they're all playing it. And then uh, try to listen for something else that's going on in addition to the vocals and the guitars and the rhythm section and the bass, which has newly entered. There's one other thing that's pretty cool. See if you can figure out what it is. So what you're hearing in the middle there is this sort of robot voice, which is fitting for a song called Paranoid Android. I always find myself calling it the speak and spell voice because it sounds a little bit like a speak and spell that I had growing up. Though I think that what they're really doing is it might be a Mac, but if you just type into a text edit on a Macintosh, and this I think was true in the 1990s as well, um, it'll just talk for you. So you can type something in and it'll say something like uh, here. Let's let's do an experiment. Hello. Kurt. Why, hello there, robot person. How are you doing today? Better. Happier. Listening to more music and fewer politics podcasts. Wow, that's great. That sounds like a great life change for you. How have you been listening to music? I put on headphones and really listen closely and find I hear so much more than I used to. That is just wonderful to hear. Uh, do you have a favorite musical instrument? I like every instrument except for the saxophone. I cannot stand sax solos. <laughs> oh, man. Well, you're entitled to your opinion, I guess. Okay. Time for me to get back to this episode of Strong Songs I was listening to before you interrupted me. So that unexpectedly dispiriting check-in with my robot friend, of course, was styled after a later track on OK Computer called Fitter Happier, in which a very similar-sounding Macintosh robot voice talks about its life as a consumer drone, how it is fitter and happier, getting along better with its associates at work, and that kind of thing. At ease. Eating well. No more microwave dinners and saturated fats. A patient better driver, a safer car, baby smiling in backseat. Having that sound turn up here first is sort of foreshadowing that track, and it ties OK Computer together in, you know, one of many ways that this album is sort of eh, conceptually connected. It's not exactly a concept album, but it feels like one a lot of the time. When I So that line about you being first up against the wall, it kind of references the delusions of this protagonist, and it also, of course, is a reference to Marvin the Paranoid Android, the character that this song is named for, a character from Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Trilogy, this sort of misanthropic robot. So the second time through basically plays out the same as the first time through. The speak and spell robot voice comes back in for the second time through this descending chord progression, which then of course is setting up the entrance of the next riff and the transition into the next phase of the song. So if you remember during that descending chord progression, we went from G minor with a major 6th on top to an F major 7 to an E7. 
Now, E7 is a dominant chord, and that's going to want to go somewhere. We've talked about this a few times, just the idea that a, that a dominant chord tends to want to go somewhere. And if you're playing an E7 chord, especially in this um, in this kind of context, it really wants to go to A minor. So it's kind of this big build that once they sit down there on that E7, um, you know, they're kind of like, let it sit for a minute, and it really wants to go to A minor. And lo and behold, that's where this riff begins. So the riff is an A minor riff. It starts on A with that open A string, and it sounds like this. And that riff is basically what this whole section is built around. Now, the word riff is kind of an interesting one. It, it implies something. I think it's like a word that gets thrown around a lot when people talk about music, but it has a very specific meaning, um, at least when I use it. I don't know if this is a universal usage, but uh, my composition professor back at the University of Miami, a really amazing teacher named Ronnie Miller, would talk about riff-based music as basically there aren't chords happening. There's just a riff, like a single note melody. And you'll hear a lot of riff-based stuff in rock and roll. You know, when a guitar, when like the guitars are just playing, Playing a riff together, do 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 do, and there's no chords happening. It's just everybody is playing this melody. It's implying a harmony. In this case, you know, this riff is really clearly implying A minor. It kind of has an A and then a G sharp, which sounds like an E is going back to A. But it's not like they're not exactly playing chords. They play some chords later, but it's a more of a riff-based thing. So when I use the word riff, that's kind of what I'm talking about. You can also use the word riff to just refer to a riff that someone played. You know, a melody, oh, that was a cool riff, that little lick, that line that they played. It's kind of interchangeable with lick. But like riff-based music is kind of a more specific thing. And this section is very riff-based. So as they did with that first section, they actually play through the second section instrumentally once, which is cool because it uh, lets the listener kind of find their bearings in this new area, uh, which is particularly useful in this section because they go up to that C and that's where they start playing in seven so that there's some odd time signature stuff going on too. So, you know, they're playing the riff, they're kind of in A and it's just grooving along in 4-4 time like this song has been uh, entirely up to this point. So counting eighth notes, it's one, two, three, four, one, two, three. This is different. It's like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. So basically what's happening is when they're down on the A, they're in 4-4, four, four, and then they go up to this thing that kind of jumps between C and A flat. Again, it's kind of riff-based, so it's a little bit uh, hard to tell, but they're kind of going between C and A flat, and that's where they go into 7, which is basically 4 plus 3. 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Um, I always do the 1, 2, 3. You could count all the way up to 7, though, if you want, if that's easier for you. So um, that's just me playing it on piano, but let's listen to the recording, and I'll do the same thing. I'll kind of count along to help you hear it and count it. So we're still in 4-4 four, four here. And here we go. 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3. 
So it's not actually really all that wild. There's just this one place where they always play in seven. And once you figure out where it is, it's pretty easy to count. But just be aware of that missing beat. You know, if it was in four, they would get up to eight. So with seven, it just feels like it always kind of gets to the next part a little bit sooner than you were expecting, which trips you up. So this has kind of been a come down in energy a little bit as they go down to that riff. But there's all this cool stuff going on in the sort of periphery of the mix that's adding tension and kind of teasing the fact that things are about to get very, very loud. They do this really cool vocal thing. It's some kind of distorted, like, ring-filtered vocal that fades in right before Tom York begins singing again. Check it out. It's like this nightmare vocal fry, kind of. It's like, eh, just sneaking in. It's some kind of weird filter. It actually kind of sounds like the sound that the Matrix makes in those movies when you get sucked into the Matrix through the phone. Um, anyways, it's a cool sound, and there's a lot of that. You know, there's this kind of like, gah, gah, that sounds in the right that kind of echoes after Tom York sings. She look pretty ugly. Like, what is that? It's like Freddy Krueger turns up in the mix suddenly and is like, ah, ah. And you can hear over on the left, the electric guitar kind of comes in with this, like, creepy sort of muted guitar thing. So they're doing a good job of kind of setting up this kind of monster hit that's coming up. The electric guitar is introduced. It sounds a little more distorted. There are these sort of nightmare sounds and weird ringing filters. The vocals are reverberating around. So when that hit finally drops, you're kind of ready for it, even if you were maybe dreading it. It's really cool. Oh man, like the Rhodes keyboard is in and all these weird vocal undulations. What's gonna happen? What's gonna happen? And the guitars and the full drum set are in, and at long last, Radiohead is unleashed. So that section is a super crucial pivot point for the song. You know, they just fully rock out. They're back in that 7-4 section going between the C and the A flat. The guitars are fully distorted. The snare drum is in now, so it's no longer that clicking thing that was serving as the pop in the, you know, in the groove previously. At this point, Philip Selway has switched over to the snare drum and is playing full-on rock in 7. So Johnny Greenwood solos on this are awesome, but I love what Tom York does vocally right there over that seven part. He's like, nah, he goes up there. If you ever doubt Tom York's influence on vocalists, just listen to this. There are so many modern rock bands that use his vocal stylings as a, as a jumping off point. Uh, like, for example, okay, Muse. Lots of people like Muse, right? Especially early Muse, like when Muse was really good. So uh, check out lead singer Matt Bellamy on this tune, Hyper Music, off of, I think, my favorite album of theirs, Origin of Symmetry, and just listen for the similarity. Right? Then he does it again. Matt Bellamy is definitely not the only one. Tom York's vocal style has just been a huge influence, I think, on a lot of singers, sort of post-90s rock singers. Also, man, this album rocked. This was recorded in 2001. Origin of Symmetry is such a good album. 
back to Paranoid Android. So as Tom York is caterwauling up there on those high notes and the band is finally fully rocking out, they set up Johnny Greenwood's first guitar solo. And man, it's a cool guitar solo in the way that a lot of his guitar solos are cool in that it just sort of defies categorization. I mean, he's playing these really cool ideas, but they're more like ideas and shapes and colors more than they are, you know, guitar licks that, that sound familiar and easily e- easy to break down. Uh, so anyways, check out Johnny Greenwood's solo. It's, it's pretty great. crazy solo i like a lot of things about that solo for one thing i like what he plays over the seven section he does this kind of thing where it's like g and then it goes up to a flat and then it goes down to this almost whole tone sounding thing that walks down to d whole tone is just a type of scale that's all whole steps and it has this very like angular kind of like jostly awkward feel to it it's such a cool line I also just really love something that the rhythm guitar over on the right channel actually does. I think that must be Ed O'Brien playing electric guitar. But there's just this one point where in the middle of the riff he's like dom dom do dom and he like grabs the whammy bar and just like jacks his note around a bunch and it's super cool. It just adds to the sort of out of control energy that this whole section has. And I also like how it ends, which really emphasizes how out of control it feels because it feels like it just crashes. And it's almost like, you know, it crashes into the bottom of the lake, I guess. It just totally like ends in this huge wash of sound. And now that we've crash landed, it's time to float through the depths of the next section of the song. This section is just so beautiful and such a dramatic shift from the rest of the song. I actually see it as kind of the climax of the song, despite the fact that it's, you know, nowhere near as energetic and rambunctious and explosive as Johnny Greenwood's guitar sections or when the band is really, you know, all distorted guitars and rocking out. It feels like the arrival point of the song. There's a reason that I always describe it this way that I always see it, which is sort of, you know, just walking on the bottom of the lake like you've arrived at the depths and you're just down here. And it's this kind of moment of of grace, you know, it's a. Uh, it's a kind of a foreboding place. It's a dark place, but it's also, there's a feeling of surrender to this sort of, of release that I think works really well and is a very important part of this song. One of the reasons for that feeling of release is there's a huge shift in what kind of music is happening harmonically. So remember I was talking about riff-based music before, and that rock section is very riff-based. You know, there's that heavy riff going on underneath. Everybody's playing the riff together. But this section, the sort of choral release section, follows much more traditional harmony. When I just play it on piano, it's gorgeous sounding. It just sounds like a piano composition. And 
and that's because it's following the rules of traditional Western harmony. Fives move to one, there's proper voice leading, everything goes where it should go, and there are a lot of chords to this section too. It's a really significant departure from the rest of the song, which is really just revolved around a couple of different chord centers. There's also, of course, though, the fact that just the whole sound of the song has changed, and part of that is this choral arrangement. You know, the whole band is now singing these ah in the background, um, arranged to this beautiful and very different harmony. There's also some synth happening. I think there, there's a Mellotron credit on this tune, so there might be a Mellotron, which I explained. It's a kind of a cool tape-based keyboard instrument that I uh, got into a little bit on a Q&A ages ago. But that's a cool sound that's in there, and there's some synthesizers in there too, I think. And just everything makes this very rich and atmospheric feel. The beat is so minimal, there's just an acoustic guitar strumming along with the voices, so by the time Tom York comes in, it's just completely changed the mood. There's also been a significant lyrical shift that kind of matches up with the new energy of this part of the song. You know, the early parts of the song are very kind of judgmental, like this quiet, angry person. And this is much more plaintive. You know, he's just singing rain down from a great height. And it feels like he's kind of beseeching the listener. And um, it's a much sadder and more lost part of the song, which totally fits with the music. So on that third time through, York layers this extra vocal track on top of the ones that already exist, which just sounds wonderful. And then they reach that E7 and just start building it, and you know what's coming next. And it's time to rock out again. You know, I really think there's a version of this song that could have ended just on that very low, completely different section. It would have been a very different song, but it's interesting to think about that. I know there were a bunch of draft versions of this that they worked on in the studio. There's apparently a really long version, and they did a lot of editing. So there are all these different, you know, versions of Paranoid Android. And I wonder about the version that could have just ended with this lost, you know, wandering off into the darkness. It kind of would fit with the song, though this very violent ending that they bring in is also probably more fitting for the song, I guess, in a certain way, and uh, certainly for the protagonist of this song, this feeling of like the pressure finally bearing down and crushing the listener. And I love the way that they bring the guitars in. You know, it's this typical trick. I've talked about it a bunch on this show. They go really small so that when you go big, things feel really big. But they pull it straight to the center just for the acoustic guitar, and then the electric guitars come in, panned hard to the right and left with this really just bodacious pick slide that then just brings that riff all the way back in and they just they hit it really hard yeah. 
this part is just ridiculous. There's these guitar sound in there that's just this death monster noise. I don't know what's making this sound, but it's incredible. It's this. It's like it's like they turned on a death TV and got nothing but murder static. I don't know, man. It's awesome, though. So throughout this section, Johnny Greenwood is soloing. He's using all kinds of cool filters on his guitar, you know, with a sort of this like pitch bending thing going on. I think that might be his flanger. I don't I don't even know at this point. Getting a really wild tone. And this whole thing is just super just intense and kind of grinding and shaking and noise and distortion. And all at once, at the peak of the chaos, it ends. It's not really a happy ending for this journey, but it's kind of fitting because this isn't really a very happy song. Paranoid Android is the most well-known track from OK Computer, but the whole album is just about feelings of alienation and despair. It's fitting that this song, this song that's named for this misanthropic robot who hates people, and it's such a descent into darkness in the depths of the human psyche that it ends on this kind of violent, unresolved, crushing feeling. Paranoid Android is this darkly beautiful song that fits perfectly in this darkly beautiful album, and it's kind of a jumping off point not just for OK Computer, but for Radiohead as a band, you know? They would go on after OK Computer to embrace much more experimental and unusual sounds, and it was the kind of stuff that you can hear in Paranoid Android. It really does feel like a starting point. Paranoid Android wasn't just a high watermark for alt-rock of the 1990s. It was a promise beckoning forward to a dark and mysterious future. And that'll do it for my analysis of Radiohead's Paranoid Android. Thank you all so much, as always, for listening. I really appreciate it. And thanks for spreading the word. I know a lot of people are always telling their friends about it. And like I've said many times in the past, that is such a great way to help this show. If you know anybody who you think might like it, please spread the word. Thank you so much to my Patreon backers. Half and Whole Note patrons are listed in the show notes. Thanks to all of you. You are making it much easier for me to dedicate the kind of time that I want to dedicate to this show to make it as good as it can be. This show really is just listening are supported so if you like this episode head on over to patreon.com slash strong songs and consider becoming a patron this episode's outro soloist is the fabulous galen clark a portland-based organ keyboard player who has a group called trio subtonic that you should really check out if you're ever in town stick around for galen and i'll be back in two weeks with yet another strong song
just so you know, I was only kidding when I said I didn't like saxophones. Everyone likes saxophones. I just like to mess with Kirk sometimes. You should have seen his face, ha ha ha. Anyway, thanks for listening. Bye.